50 Venezuelan refugees were quickly whisked off of Martha's Vineyard to a military base, but we don't think that white leftists can just wish this issue away. The Midnight Ride discusses possible solutions to our nation's immigrant crisis. Plus, another New York Post story confirms big tech is truly an enemy of free speech and may be reporting us, meaning me, Paul, and you, to the feds. What do we do about it? We'll discuss coming up on the Midnight Ride. Join us. It's Monday, September 19th, 2022, just over 50 days until the midterms elections of 2022, and you are listening to your home for misinformation, disinformation, also known as The Truth, the Midnight Ride podcast with Connor Coughlin and Paul Runyon. I'm Connor. He's Paul. Paul, how was your week? Good week. I had to do a lot of studying this week. I'm brushing up on my Spanish, actually. Uh, I'm not, I don't have quite the Spanish experience that you have. We've got a family trip coming up to Martha's Vineyard, and I figured I better get ready. (laughs) Well, good news. As you may have heard, you may not need that Spanish as much unless you're, I don't know. I mean, they whisk those folks out of there so fast that it made your head spin. It's kind of like in one of those movies where you see somebody sitting down at a five-star restaurant like me in my t-shirt and, and jeans and somebody say, sir, I think you'd be more comfortable in this within like five seconds. I think it was faster than that. They had the National Guard there and these 50 Venezuelan refugees were were no longer in Martha's Vineyard. But at the same time, the people that lived there were saying, look how compassionate we are. It was really, uh, <laughs> it was hard to even fathom to see that. It's it's It was all this virtue signaling. It's like, Look at me, I'm out here, you know, helping these immigrants. I'm sure that that these young women, I saw the pictures of them. That was probably all over their Instagram. They were doing selfies and do, doing the video of themselves helping. And then the minute the, the phones get turned off, it's like, all right, get, get off the island. Get on the bus. Yeah, I saw a sign that they had, a virtue signaling sign. And there was a great meme where when the cameras were, were looking, they said, here at Martha's Vineyard, we, we welcome... Everybody, it had all of the favored groups, you know, Black Lives Matter, LGBTQ+, refugees, it said. And then when the cameras weren't looking, they pulled that sign off and it said, you are under constant video surveillance. One of the things that got me was they interviewed this woman who said, you know, we can't, unfortunately, we, I mean, we'd love to have them here, but we can't because we don't have the services and we, we're in a housing crisis here. We don't have enough housing for the people who live here and work here. Although that's not what I heard from, uh, you were telling me that you went and looked on Airbnb and that doesn't seem to be the case, right? No, uh, first of all, all of the media, you know, the NBC News, CNN, where do you think those people were staying? This is an actual island. You know, I mean, yes, you can ferry over and stuff, but you know, these media were loving it because they were getting a nice little summer vacay in Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, there's over 200 homes and rental rooms at Martha's Vineyard. So if you want to play the role of, you know, compassionate welcomer of refugees, then invite them into your homes. Take a little bit of a revenue hit. No, they weren't willing to do that. Did you know I I used to go to Martha's Vineyard as a kid? Like we went, obviously, we you and I sort of live in different worlds. 
<laughs> yeah, I used to I used to go to Tijuana as a kid, you know, little different <laughs> vacation spots. Yeah, so I mean it's such a it's such a beautiful place. Now, you know, it's essentially home for I think what like Barbara Streisand and Barack Obama. Yeah, Bette Midler probably hangs out there, Rob Reiner. They probably all go spend some time there, but it is just fascinating to me how quickly they got those illegal aliens out of there. Um, and and I, what I would say is, are the flights going to keep coming? Are they going to, is, you know, what happens when a thousand migrants get sent to Martha's Vineyard? Is that what's, what's going to happen at that point? We're going to talk about this here in a minute. I think that's what needs to happen. But there's a political fight now. You know, the Democrats have come up with their narrative. You saw immediately them circle the wagons and come up with talking points. You had Karine Jean-Pierre, you had Hillary Clinton and many other Democratic officials all on television saying the same exact words, that DeSantis and Abbott were human traffickers. They were no different from the cartels. But I saw a great feed on, on Twitter from the redheaded libertarian at TRHL official that kind of unpacks the whole the whole issue. And it, it reminds us, and there was a, a story done back in November of last year, so less than a year ago, that President Biden himself and the Biden administration sent 70, 70 flights, not one like Ron DeSantis, but 70 flights to Florida, to the Jacksonville airport with, a, we're talking probably over a thousand, maybe 2000 or more illegal aliens to Florida, just dumping them off. And these flights landed after midnight. You know, the DeSantis flight was in the in broad daylight, but the president sent 70 flights to Florida. So the Florida legislature responded by including $12 million in the fiscal year 22-23 budget to transport migrants to sanctuary cities. And I think that's an important thing to say, that if you don't want illegal aliens coming to your jurisdiction, don't classify yourself as a sanctuary city. Were they doing it just as a virtue sig signal? Governor DeSantis flew 48 migrants to Martha's Vineyard. And again, I'm getting this all off the thread from the redheaded libertarian. I recommend you go to her and read this. But he was quoted as saying, we're not a sanctuary state, Florida. And it's better to be able to go to a sanctuary jurisdiction. We will help facilitate that transport for you to be able to go to greener pastures. Every, and this is the important part. And I agree with this, Paul. Every community in America should be sharing in the burdens. It shouldn't all fall on a handful of red states. In the past two years under Joe Biden, we've essentially had a city about the size of Philadelphia pop up in our country of unvetted illegal immigrants, but it's falling on. Florida, Texas, Arizona, and to a lesser extent, New Mexico, California. And yeah, it's the Biden administration has flown after midnight in most all cases to a lot of, a lot of different states. They've flown these migrants, but the preponderant majority is, is in these border states. And I don't think it's fair that they have to be the ones to deal with the Biden administration's decisions. It should be spread out equally. Uh, it certainly should. And at, at this point, they're sending them to these border states, which to me is just insane. And I don't think that there's these states. I mean, I, I don't think they have a choice in what they're doing. You know, I saw an interesting interview with the mayor of Miami 
Francis Suarez, who's a Republican mayor. He's the one of the few Republican big city mayors out there. He's a Cuban American immigrant. And uh, I wanted to talk about like what he said. Let's take a listen. Uh, Mayor, what can you say about the migrant issue and the uh, sending of the Venezuelan uh, migrants to Massachusetts? Uh, what are your thoughts weighing in on that? So many. I think first, you know, the Venezuelan people have suffered tremendously. Obviously, many of them are, are uh, um, fleeing political persecution, much like Cubans that came to this country. So that's sort of one of the thoughts. Um, secondly, you know, this is something that I think both parties um, share the blame, right? You're talking about, um, from our understanding of the reporting, federal government has sent 70 flights of migrants into the state of Florida. And we should not, uh, whether if you're Republican or Democrat, you should not politicize people, right? And I think there has to be now a rational national conversation on immigration reform to solve this problem once and for all. Uh, and it should be based on our economic needs as a country, um, our, our national security interests, but it should also be compassion. I mean, this is a country of immigrants. Uh, this is a city of immigrants. Um, and we thrive because of that. Connor, your thoughts? Mayor Francis Suarez, a guy that is a rising star, maybe in Florida politics, maybe nationally. We don't talk about him enough, Paul. This is maybe the only major city in America that isn't overrun by crime, that is developing into a little bit of a mini Silicon Valley on the tech sector side. A lot of that has to do with Governor DeSantis's pandemic policies, but this mayor is a very good mayor and he kind of takes a traditional Republican approach in that, hey, we're all, immigration is our strength. You know, we're all human beings. Calls out DeSantis a little bit. I, I think everything he said is true. You know, I mean, he, he does call out the Biden, 70 Biden flights, which, which we talked about earlier in this show. Yeah, I like what he said, but you got to have people on both sides that are willing to agree on that. I, I would tend to agree with you, uh, Connor. He, he's a, and as someone that's in Florida, I have a little bit more of some insight into Mayor Suarez. You know, he and DeSantis don't always see eye to eye. During the pandemic, Suarez was a little bit more pro kind of masking and a little, you know, not, things that I don't necessarily agree with. But he's much more of a mayor kind of in line with like the Rudolph Giuliani, New York mayor, mold. And he's done a great job there. And one, and I agree with everything that he's saying, you know, and he's right. I mean, the migrants shouldn't be politically used as political footballs like he has been done. But the fact is, in my opinion, DeSantis really didn't have a choice and neither did Abbott because they just, you know, you can't just keep accepting all these endless migrants and not have these Northern states bear any of the consequences at all. And he's, they have to do something that's going to get the attention of the people that live there and get them to see what's happening. He doesn't really have a choice in the matter. I'm not, you know, I'm not Mr. Like MAGA cheerleader, own the libs. Let's send this, you know, send these migrants up there. I mean, I, this is a necessary thing that's happening. It absolutely is. I couldn't agree with you more. Suarez says some very wise things that we can talk about here in a couple of minutes, because I know you're going to go through some of the solutions. But in the last couple of years, we've had an American city, you know, like the size of Philadelphia pop up in our country over it's over 4 million illegals have sw have swarmed in when Biden laid out the welcoming map. The border is not being enforced. It's not secure. And these states, these three states in particular are being overrun. 
And so it's a forcing function in a way to get the attention of the media elites, to get the attention of some of the voters around the country as to what's going on. It also exposes the hypocrisy, and I would say racism, frankly, of the left. And here's our tweet of the week. This was a deleted tweet, but it's a tweet of the week nonetheless, and it's from NBC News. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis sending asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard is like, quote, me taking my trash out and just driving to different areas where I live and just throwing my trash there, end quote. A founding member of a foundation which helps refugees says at NBC Latino. So NBC News comparing these refugees to trash. And that's sort of how I see the people on Martha's Vineyard. When they were being put on those buses, as you said, the Instagram, you know, the cameras were rolling. These young ladies and the one who was right before they got on the bus, I saw a woman hugging a migrant. And then as the migrant turned, she literally used two hands and touched this migrant on the back and pushed her onto the bus. That was one of the first, I mean, they're, they're exposing themselves as hypocr- you know, hypocritical virtue signalers, but we've got a, we got, we need more people like Francis Suarez and Ron DeSantis who are saying, look, this is a national problem. We need national solutions, not just, we, I think we got to start with fixing the border and securing it. But then what do we do about the 44 million illegal aliens that are here right now, many of whom are contributing members, law-abiding contributing members of our society. And like these Venezuelans who are fleeing communism, socialism, they love liberty. These are people we want here. It brings me, you know, you mentioned Venezuelans. That's one thing that I felt a little bit weird about. It's like, why were they sending Venezuelans to Martha's Vineyard? Because I feel like those are one of the few immigrant groups that do have legitimate asylum claims. And there's a vibrant Venezuelan community in South Florida, but they were being sent from Texas. So that whole thing is interesting. We don't really need to get into it. But he did mention comprehensive immigration reform. And I got to thinking about it this week. We do need some sort of national coming together on developing a system that's going to create a really good, efficient immigration system. Because the mayor is right. We need immigration in this country. Our birth rates are falling. If we don't have immigration, the population of the United States is going to decline, just like it is in all of these other countries around the world, in Western Europe and Russia and China and Japan. It doesn't matter where you are. Without immigration, we as a country are screwed. And that's just a fact. And we have got to come up with some sort of reform that is going to work for everybody. So I went to the Cato Institute and also started brainstorming some ideas for myself and wanted to go through some of them with you, Connor, and see what you thought. I don't agree with all of them, but I wanted to go through it. And it might be a really interesting discussion that our listeners might want to hear. And I'll warn some of the ultra MAGA crowd that likes to listen to the Midnight Ride. Some of it may upset you, but we've got to come to some kind of consensus here in the country or this problem is never going to go away. Well, yeah, before we do that, and I I agree with you 100%, and it is a national imperative for us to have immigration. And we've talked about this so many times on the Midnight Ride. Do we just have unchecked immigration of unskilled people who who are coming in here into an economy that's going to rely on more technologically advanced manufacturing and, and other things? Or do we open it up to the whole world? Everybody in the world, including the Chinese, 
include, you know, everybody wants to come to America. I'm sorry that call me an American exceptionalist. I am unabashedly, you know, unapologetically. I, I will say this is the greatest country on earth and people risk their lives every day to get to our shores, to get to the Americas so that they can start making that trek north with the help of the cartels. If they, they know if they can just get to Mexico, if they can just get to Panama or whatever, there is a path to prosperity for them because America still is great. But we don't have to, it doesn't have to all be from Central America. It could be from people from all over the world, but we have to have a legal system. So I, I agree with you. Let, let's hear some of these solutions. I think people on both sides, the ultra right as well as the left, aren't serious and they're using this as a, a, a political way to get votes, but they're never going to address it. So let's, let's hear some of the policy solutions. Yeah, I'd love to. So starting with some of the ones from the Cato Institute, let's, let's talk about a couple things. One thing they talk about is allowing current illegal immigrants, so people that are in the country now that we've got to deal with, is, are two kind of things. You can either seek to legalize their status in a pretty simple way. So, you know, if you're here now, you go through some hoops, you get your green card, and you're good to go, but with no path to citizenship. So sort of an easy way to do it. It's like, here, you can, you can get legalized, assuming you haven't committed any crimes, you've been here for a certain amount of time, get your green card, or you can choose a more onerous path to citizenship, which would require learning English, paying some fees, could take a very long time, but you do have that ability to go through with citizenship. So there's a difference there between permanent residence and citizenship, and it would give immigrants a choice on which one they want to choose. We're talking about people that are here now, I'm not talking about people in other countries. This is this is to kind of get a handle on the folks that are here now. Yeah. Right now, there there is no sort of like middle ground. It's just this very sort of bureaucratic process, eventually could go to citizenship, but takes forever. This could streamline it. Here, you have a visa. You, you're not going to get citizenship, but at least you could be here. Okay, first of all, there's the biggest thing that you just said right there. We have to get a handle on the 44 million before we start addressing the rest of it. And I think, I think step one is the Donald Trump solution, which is secure the border so that we know in a country that has had terrorist attacks like 9-11, like Bakersfield, like Fort Hood, like all these other places, we know who's coming in. We've got to know who's coming in. We've got we to gotta take the cartels out of the business of controlling our borders. Then we do the solutions that you are proposing. And I think I would add a, a, a Coughlin thing in there too with the people who want citizenship. I think you got to go back to the, your home country this sounds ridiculous, but go back and go to the consulate or whatever and file the paperwork. First of all, if you haven't committed crimes, anybody that has committed crimes is gone. If they're felonies or whatever, they're, they're deported. But if you are a law-abiding citizen, you want to stay, you pay a fee of, let's say, $2,000 or something like that, paperwork, so we can see where you are or whatever, you're in and you, you have permanent legal status to work pay taxes, contribute. But if you're willing to learn English and all those other things, again, you haven't committed a crime, there might be a pathway for you. But I think that, you know, it's an insult to all the people who are sitting there at a consulate in Tijuana or, you know, Mexico City or 
Tegucigalpa or one of these places, trying to do this legally, any embassy or consulate around the world, that people can just come here and get, be granted citizenship. So I think you, I would like to see folks go back and, and file the paperwork. But if they have enough years here as somebody who paid taxes and abided by the laws, then yes, if they learned English, they could get citizenship. I think both of those solutions that you mention work. And again, but it starts with the idea that we're going to secure the border. And if you don't take one of these pathways, we will find you and you will be deported. Do you agree with that? 100% I do. I think, I think that is super important to do that. You can't have this without securing the border. It's like in order to, in order to create a new system, and I have a lot of ideas here from Cato and some things that I thought about that, that will create this new system, but you're completely right. You've got a one- get a handle on the people that are here and get all of those folks sort of settled. They either leave, they get some permanent resident status, they're on a path to citizenship. That has to get all get done to fix that. Secure the border so that it's really difficult for people to just come across. Once you do that, then you can create a good, efficient system that everyone all over the world that wants to come to the United States understands what those rules are and there's no need to be sneaking across the border because there's a good way to make this thing happen and you know what you have to do. And, you know, it starts with the idea that we will now begin, I know we, under President Obama, for example, we deported a lot of people. And I don't, I think, I don't know if it was as high under Trump. Uh, I know that the Biden administration is deporting some people, but not a lot. So the idea that if you're here, if you're one of these 45 million, we're going to give you some options, but you got to take one of these options or else we're going to come for you and you're going to be gone. That we've got to do that. And, and also, you know, the idea among some of the MAGA types and the Stephen Millers and, and the ultra right, that they want to reduce, not only eliminate illegal immigration, but reduce legal immigration. As you said, the, our demography as a country doesn't allow for that if we are going to survive with our birth rate. So I like opening the aperture of legal immigration, but again, I'd like to tailor it as President, former President Trump would to countries and, and people who could help America. The idea is to help America, right? America first. We will always take refugees, but for economic migrants, I'd like to help people that can help our country as well. Exactly. A few things that, uh, that uh, Cato mentioned also, it's a little bureaucratic minutia, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. I'm just going to kind of read through a little list. And this is more into sort of fixing what we have in the country now as far as illegal immigrants is they have something called the three and 10-year bars. And you mentioned this also that about going back to their country. So for example, if you, if you there's a law now that says like if you've, accumulated more than six months of illegal presence in the U.S. that in order to be like be eligible for a green card, you got to leave and come back for three years. So at leave for three years at least. And then if you have a year of illegal presence in the country, you have to then go leave the country for 10 years. That has to get repealed. That's a law on the books right now. If you don't repeal that, then we can't do what we've just been talking about. It's one thing to make somebody go back, fill the paperwork, but if you're telling them they have to be leave for 10 years, that's just going to keep, it provides this perverse incentive for people to stay 
in illegal status than to apply for visas. So I don't know if you knew that, Connor. We're both in agreement that you should have to go back. But for someone, say, that's been here for five years and you're going to say, go back and do the paperwork, the law in the book right now says you got to go back to your country for 10 years before you can even apply to come back, which is pretty crazy. No, I think I think you just write that into whatever this immigration reform law that we do. It's like a grandfathering. That law would still exist for 2023 and beyond. But for these folks, it would be an amnesty provision. Listen, the majority of these folks that are here, the 44 million, I believe now, granted, President Biden said, hey, the border's open, come on in. And so you have these waves of humanity coming across. It's mind boggling to see. You sometimes can see it on Fox News because they have set up bureaus in La Jolla and Eagle Pass and you, they have drones flying. And you, it's, it's mind boggling to see the, the, these waves of humans. But most of them are visa overstays. And those people come in, they say that they want to go to Disneyland or whatever, or they, they want to go shopping in McAllen. And then they just, they just cross, they, they come legally and then they just stay forever. Or they stay. You can stay, I think, for 90 days under that. And on the 89th day, they can go back in and, and get their passport stamped again or whatever. But there's a lot of ways that it is done. And let's also point out, by legalizing this, again, giving people the option if they are law-abiding. I mean, jaywalkers maybe can stay. But if you stole, you're out for good. If you committed any sort of violent act, you're out for We got to get, because there's a lot of criminals coming across right now. but. There are folks who are the third largest city or maybe the second largest city in Mexico is Los Angeles in terms of Mexican citizens. That's how many illegal aliens live in, in L.A. There are people who go back for Christmas or an anniversary or a birthday or, or a funeral of a loved one, and then they've got to make their way back up and in some cases pay coyotes and, and maybe put their lives at risk. We've had so many immigrants die this year, record numbers. People, because these cartels are, are also taking advantage of, of young women. They're, in some cases, holding them for ransom and even killing them. And then it's an arduous trek with the heat in the desert and everything else. There's a lot of people that are dying. People are doing that to go home for Christmas. So having this compassionate approach, I think, because these people, they have lives here. They have jobs. They're contributing to our society. So if you do something like this, you're, you're taking that out of the hands of the cartels and you're allowing these folks to safely go back to their native land and come back and forth. And that saves them money. And it's, it's better for, for example, the airlines or whatever. I mean, it's just, it makes a lot of sense to do. It does make sense. So let's talk about some of the things to do. So let's assume, okay, we now have a secure border. We've got all of the immigrants in the U.S. that uh, have been illegal and staying here. That problem has been solved. They've been given their choice. They've either left, they've got a green card, they're on a path to citizenship. So that's done. Now we do a system after that that is going to kind of set the rules and um, make it much more predictable. So what Cato is recommending is one, We've got to really expand visas for lesser skilled workers. So like no single policy would do more to actually reduce illegal immigration than expanding these kinds of work visas. So if you look through history, 
you've got the more, there's a real inverse relationship between entries of lower skilled Mexican workers and apprehensions by border patrol. So if you have a high number of visas uh, for unskilled workers, you're going to get a much lower number of people trying to get across the border illegally. And this is important because we have a big agricultural system. We need farm workers. Americans won't do this work. It's important. They have what's called the H-2A agricultural visa, and it provides farmers with a way to hire legal guest workers. So right now it's numerically uncapped, but it's an extremely complex and expensive visa program. It's something that should be streamlined. So right now farmers have to follow this lengthy process. It's delayed by duplicative reviews by three different agencies to prove that U.S. workers are unavailable, which they are almost always unavailable, but you still have to go through this huge, uh, this huge bureaucratic thing. So they, what Cato is saying is let's create the single online filing portal to make things efficient so that uh, that's reviewed once by an agency so that we can get this H-2A visa issue um, under control. Most people don't know what that H-2A thing is, but it's huge. It's about farm workers. If you live in California, and I know, Connor, that you spent a lot of time in California, you know that without Mexican farm workers, you don't have an agricultural industry in the United States. Yeah, a fourth of the country doesn't get fed. So, so let me ask you this. Is this something, this H-2H, that... H-2A, H-2A. H-2A, that a... a farm worker in Jalisco, Mexico, let's say, goes to the United States consulate in Guadalajara and says, I want to be one of these workers, fills out the paperwork that can be processed in their home country and can be granted. And then they can take a bus to Tijuana, walk across, take another bus up to Fresno, and the cartel gets $0. They're out for that. For all of these workers, they can do it that way if there's a streamlined process or do they have to, or are those given out here in the US once these people are already here illegally no i mean what happens is no this is for people that are in mexico so remember the people that we we're in a world now we're sort of we're, we're playing this this little game here we're in a world now where the system's been fixed so everybody else everyone is here legally right so those people that are already in the country they're here legally they have their green cards they can go apply for work anywhere so if these farmers that are in these these landowners that are in California or wherever else they are need people. They go into the system and and they get the right to do this. People can then apply in Mexico or in Central America to get these visas, and they can come up and they're like, "Hey, I have this visa. I can come into the country." They could they could fly in with, through the air, you know, in an airport. And you're right; it takes the cartels completely out of it. They don't need to go to the cartels. Nobody needs to be smuggled. They can, they can come up and do this work. They can't really bring their families with them, but they can send money back or whatever it is, and that's the way it works in other areas. There's another program called the H-2B non-agricultural visa. So that uh, actually allows non-agricultural employers to hire foreign workers when U.S. workers reject a seasonal or temporary job. We kind of heard a lot about that when Trump was president because the left used to love to talk about how the Trump properties would hire some of these folks uh, in the hotel industry for seasonal uh, times when it's busy. And that's the problem with that one is there's 
been this new numerical cap. There's like this random cap of 66,000 people that's been filled every year since 2015. And that guarantees that open jobs go unfilled because there's obviously a need for more than that. So uh, it costs U.S. employers productivity. It costs U.S. consumers access to goods and services and U.S. workers jobs that depend on the H-2B jobs like supervisory positions and others don't have that opportunity because you have this 66,000-person cap. So uh, getting rid of the cap or increasing it, I think, is going to help a lot and also creating a situation where it's an easy thing to do. So you create an, an online system, it's not bureaucratic, and you allow these folks to come in. So at one point, so you've got the agricultural one, you've got the non-agricultural. So we're all talking unskilled workers at this point. One thing you've got to do, I think, with these, though, is you have to have really good tracking, right? So you've got to make sure that, that you know where these people are, that they either go back if for some reason they lose their job, that they go back to their country. So those, those are both really interesting. And one area I think that's key that Cato recommends uh, with this is restricting welfare for non-citizens. You and I have talked a lot about this, right? So you've got to reserve all means-tested welfare and entitlement to only U.S. citizens, except in truly extraordinary circumstances. Because if you've got these H-2A and H-2B visa people coming in, and you're increasing the numbers, what happens if one of them loses their job? They do not have access to government benefits. It's going to incentivize them to go back to their country. It's also going to incentivize, disincentivize people coming across illegally because they will not get welfare benefits. And I think that is a hugely important piece to make this work. Welfare only for citizens. Yeah, and just... To be clear, I'm for restricting welfare for non-citizens. I'm also for restricting it to citizens. I mean, we have <laughs> we have one third of our adult males idle in this country right now, and if any of those are still collecting, you know, unemployment benefits or or because there's a lot of everywhere I go, there's people hiring. Listen, this is a country that values work, and if you're able-bodied and you're not working, I don't think you and I should be paying for you. So, so far on our election, uh, excuse me, our immigration reform bill, we've got securing the border. We've got deporting anybody who doesn't take one of our two paths to legal status or citizenship. And we've got expanding the H-2A and H-2B visa programs, which I am fully in favor of because number one, it doesn't grant citizenship, but number two, injects blood into our economy. And these folks are outstanding, hardworking folks who also want liberty. They also want to live in, in a safe country. They, they have dreams for their children. And it's been so great for our country through the decades and even centuries. It really has. And, you know, look at the political side of it as well. I mean, and look at the way the polls have been looking. If you look at the Latino population, and these are these are eligible voters, so these are citizens, they are saying, we don't like this, e this illegal immigration system the way it's happening. We don't support this progressive agenda of like just letting people in, giving them whatever they want, 
living off the government forever. Well, it's making them unsafe. Exactly. It's making them unsafe. So these are folks that we want. These are entrepreneurial people. They want to make a better life. That's what we want in the United States. Those are the people that are going to support liberty and our constitution. It's our constitution that bring those folks in. If you take the welfare away for non-citizens, then it's gonna, you're going to take away those people that are just coming in to live off the government and you're going to get more entrepreneurial people. So we've talked about the, the non-skilled workers. Let's talk about skilled workers. That's a whole other piece of this that we want to bring in. Cato is saying that Congress should expand visas for these high-skilled workers, right? You know, and I think it's pretty obvious that these high-skilled immigrants, whether they're software engineers, developers, IT space, anything like that, they increase economic growth. They pay far more in taxes than they receive in benefits. Uh, they create higher paying jobs for U.S. workers because they're helping to build the economy. They spawn innovations that have made the U.S. the world leader in technology. Look at Elon Musk as an example. Manhattan Project. Yep, Manhattan Project. Um, they encourage businesses to grow. Um, right now, under the current system, U.S. Companies, companies hire these workers on temporary work visas. Such There's something called the Optional Practical Training Program for recent graduates of U.S. universities. There's the H-1B program for skilled foreign workers. Then once they're employed, they try to obtain green cards through a very lengthy process. So essentially, it makes the temporary and permanent portions of the system critical uh, for the U.S. system overall. And it's it's got these high-skilled workers, you know, caught in this really big bureaucratic process. So we need to streamline that whole thing, make it one that if a company says we need these high-skilled people, we can't get them in the U.S., there needs to be a system to get those folks in. And what they're saying is let's create a point-based program. So it's like a program that sort of grants entry and permanent residence to those with the highest number of points awarded based on an individual's characteristics. So that could be education, could be job experience, could be skill set, professional certifications. Those are sort of a way that you can do a point system. And those are the folks that would be prioritized. We don't have anything like that right now. It's like just very convoluted program. And let's get these folks in to the U.S. and helping these companies increase innovation, productivity, and all of that, and give them a good path to citizenship as well, because those are the folks that are really going to help drive this country. If you look at Europe, for example, they don't have any kind of good immigration system at all. They were essentially created this big welfare state. Europe has no innovation whatsoever, none. Like no good companies have been developed in Europe over the last 20 years, nothing. And I'm afraid we're headed that way if we don't allow more uh, high-skilled workers into this country and don't create a really good streamlined visa system that's not based on an arbitrary cap, but is based on need. Hey, I wanted to, to you know, throw some of our right-wing listeners a bone here and, and a little bit of red meat and, and discuss one quick issue with you, which is the idea of birthright citizenship. I have a lot of friends in the military who had children born overseas. One country that struck me was Japan. Apparently, you know, one of my buddies had a kid in Japan and just sort of inquired, hey, can I have my child be a, a dual citizen of the U.S. and Japan? And in Japan, if you're not Japanese and you're born there, you're not going to be a citizen there. The idea of birthright citizenship, it is a magnet for illegal immigration. 
and there is a concept by which through family reunification is one of the ways that the government, it's one of our policies right now for granting citizenship. And you have the, the idea of anchor babies or people, you know, once one of our family gets citizenship, we can all come across. That's that chain migration that everybody talks about. I think we need to end that. And I'm not so sure that we need to have birthright citizenship either. I mean, I disagree with you. I think birth on the birthright citizenship, because that's in the Constitution. If you're born in the United States, I mean, you're a citizen. I mean, that would require a constitutional amendment to get rid of that, which I think is something. But I think that it should be, I think there should be systems in place to prevent the anchor baby piece. And I also think if you were to keep birthright citizenship, that it should not the parents and whoever else should not be allowed to stay just because of that. So there needs to be some dis. We need to cr- we need to have some level of birthright citizenship, I think, but a disincentive for it. Maybe it's birthright if you're born in the U. Maybe if one of your parents is a U.S. citizen and yeah, and you're born in the U.S., you get it. But I do have you know some sort of birthright citizenship if at least one parent is a U.S. citizen. If somebody sneaks across in the dead of night and has a child. That's, I mean, that's a magnet to more illegal immigration. I want to get the cartels and this this horrible system that we currently have dissolved. We got to got to get them out of it. So, real quick, before we go to our next segment, I want to I want to talk about the political. Well, yeah, there's a couple things. I had a couple, one more piece though go. that I wanted to do on our policy, and maybe we can do a Twitter poll with some of these policies and see what people think. I mean, maybe a good idea. Yeah. What? You... Absolutely. I know. Let's see. One is, and I think too, from some of our friends uh, in MAGA world that I think is, we got to make English language the official language of the U.S. Everybody has to learn English, period. Prerequisite is the official language of the country, and you must do business in that language. And I think that is going to encourage immigrants to sort of assimilate into our culture a lot easier and get that done. So that's the last piece. That wasn't Cato Institute. That was a Paul Runyon idea. But we have got to make English the official language of this country. Agreed. There are tens of millions of people in this country who do not, who came here illegally, who do not speak English. And I think that would be a condition of citizenship if they wanted to be naturalized. But also, I think that for business and other things, just as an encouragement I think absolutely right. So let's talk about the political side of this. And let us not forget that in 1986, President Ronald Reagan signed a bill into law that legalized 3 million non-citizens into legal status. As part of this, it's very similar to what we were discussing earlier. There was extensive documentation, proof that people were law-abiding, that they had come here to work, that they had stayed illegally maybe, but that, that they were great contributors, and they were law-abiding residents. Those people were given legal status. This is Ronald Reagan here, who believed he was a compassionate conservative who believed in hard work and opportunity. And that's what America is about, hard work and opportunity. So how do we do this? Well, we have one side of the aisle, the, the MAGA Republicans, who, like Connor Coughlin, believe that we've got to secure the border. The Democrats would not agree to three or four billion dollars to build a border wall and and provide enhanced security, and yet we're giving them sixty billion, the Ukrainians, I'm saying, to fight this war. We've got to have something. There, there's concessions on both sides, and I think the concessions where the dreamers, 
and 44 million illegals suddenly have a pathway to either stay or get citizenship is a huge enough concession to the left who think that all these people, they don't want them in Martha's Vineyard and they don't want them in some of their communities. But as long as they think that there's 44 potential million new voters, they might go along with it. On the other side, the idea that birthright citizenship for people who don't have, for, for whom both parents are not U.S. citizens goes away, that the border is secured, that anybody who has committed any sorts of crimes in here is gone, that we will deport anyone who doesn't go along with taking one of these pathways, that the immigration structure is enhanced for tech workers and people who are going to come here and contribute to the 21st century economy and a streamlined process for our agricultural sector that allows people to get visas. I think there's enough there on both sides that you could get Chuck Schumer and you could get Kevin McCarthy and even some of the people on both of the polar wings, you know, the progressive and ultra conservative wings. We might have something here. I hope. If I'm Kevin McCarthy right now and I'm, I'm running into, and I have these midterm elections coming up, uh, in just a few weeks. This is one of the policies that I think you could run on from a a real positive, let's come up with common sense solutions that are going to help America. And I think, I think it's ripe. I think the American people want to hear this. I think they're sick of the divisiveness. Um, I think things are really just getting ugly in this country. And I think the Republican Party could score a lot of points by coming up with something and running on immigration reform, because uh, right now it's just a complete disaster. I agree. I think this is a post midterm issue. You know, we had Lindsey Graham last week bring up something on the abortion issue, which I think is something that most Americans could get behind, but the timing is a little off. I think this is one of those kind of contract with America issues that we propose after taking back the House and or the Senate. And the president, yeah, maybe he can take some credit for signing it, but this would be a permanent thing going forward that could provide border security, inject some lifeblood into the economy, and also get rid of this huge business for these dangerous cartels. Speaking of cartels, big tech, a big story in the paper of record, the New York Post this week. We've got to talk about it. It's a threat, frankly, to American liberty going forward. That when we come back on The Midnight Ride. Paul, a headline in the New York Post from last week, and it's no surprise that this one got memory hold very quickly, but I, I think some of our listeners heard this. If not, listen up. Facebook spied on private messages of Americans who questioned the 2020 elections. Uh, this is Miranda Devine, great reporter at the New York Post. She's been written, she wrote a book called The Laptop from Hell. She's written a lot of stories on the corruption with the Biden administration and the Hunter Biden laptop. According to sources within the Department of Justice, Facebook spied on the private messages and data of its users, and someone at Facebook red flagged private messages between different Facebook users over the past 19 months. Anyone that questioned the election results, they redacted them and they submitted them to the Domestic Terrorism Operational Unit at FBI headquarters in Washington. It was done outside the legal process and without probable cause, reading from Divine's story, according to one of the sources who spoke to Divine on the condition of anonymity. 
So Facebook provides the FBI with private conversations which are protected by the First Amendment and without any subpoena. They sent these to FBI field offices, and then the field offices read them and then requested them with a subpoena. This is earth-shattering news to me, Paul. I mean, we saw Zuckerberg, and we had him on. We had his quote from the Joe Rogan experience a little while ago, where he talked about giving up, where he talked about suppressing the Hunter Biden laptop story in the New York Post. Now they are. This isn't even. Maybe it is being prompted by the Biden administration. We don't know. Similar to that domestic terrorist letter written by Wendy Gar- Randy Weingarten of the School Board Association, but we clearly incestuous relationship, a dangerous relationship between big tech and Joe Biden. And I feel violated. I've already deleted Facebook, but if you have Instagram, they're owned by the same people. You might want to delete them as well. Uh, This goes all back to Section 230. And Section 230 is, it's in the U.S. Code. It was a carve out in the 90s, essentially limiting liability for a lot of these internet companies for essentially doing whatever they wanted. So if you're a user and you're damaged by anything that they do, let's say you're censored, let's say Facebook takes your content, sends it to the FBI without uh, you know any subpoenas or anything, there's no liability whatsoever for these companies. They can do whatever they want. There's nothing you can do about it. They, the rules, the constitutional rules, free speech, whatever, it doesn't apply. And this code is what has caused all of this. And now it's allowed essentially political operatives that are inside of these organizations to essentially create a entire political spying network on one side of the aisle to and with no repercussions whatsoever because they're protected by U.S. law. Um, it's crazy. I just saw Biden gave a speech the other day calling for reform to Section 230. And he's trying to, he's up there and he's he's talking about how it's a, we got to reform this bill. And then when he starts talking about it, it's like, it's almost, he's almost saying, well, it doesn't go far enough. Social media should be able to get sued by allowing, quote, you know, white supremacist speak and hate speech and nationalism. Like, so essentially they're not liable if they censor, uh, you know, anybody that's they deem to not agree with them, but they are liable if for some reason a conservative voice gets through and hasn't been censored. So it, <laughs> yeah, it's almost like we need, it's like, it's in this like alternate reality world. We have to reform Section 230 by uh, allowing even more censorship. Remember about a year ago, the, the Facebook whistleblower, Frances Haugen, she went to Congress. Yeah young blonde lady. She, she went to Congress and she, she said, Hey, Facebook, they're not censoring enough. You know, there, there was this, people were gasping going, Oh, there's going to be a whistleblower before Congress. She used to work at Facebook and she gets up there and says, we need to be censoring more. And a lot of the people on the left are nodding their heads saying, yeah, yeah. Apparently these people are short-sighted because you know, for all that they claim that we are semi-fascist, that Donald Trump is a fascist, well, what's going to happen when when Donald Trump gets in power or when Ron DeSantis gets in power or whatever? Now, granted, big tech will not do the bidding of conservatives, but the entire units of our government, including the Ministry of Truth, the Disinformation Governance Board, which is now defunct, I hope, but also this FBI counterterrorism unit, which used to investigate 
Muslim extremist terrorists and others, but is now firmly focused on right-wing conservative Americans, is now in cahoots with these tech companies. They don't see the threat in that and that what, what could happen if somebody who disagreed with them got in charge. It's really a dangerous situation that everybody should agree on. You mentioned lawsuits. And, and you mentioned on a recent edition of The Midnight Ride, Alex Berenson, who's being allowed to sue Twitter for being censored related to COVID stuff. But where's the, there, I don't see a, a way for conservatives to sue on this issue because if my private message is to you saying, hey, Paul, did you see in Michigan they closed the windows and then the next morning the votes went 100% towards Biden? My message to you might have been sent to the FBI. I know. And I, I'm not calling for a revolution. I'm just saying, this is odd. Hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. I can't sue them because I don't know if they did it to me. But here we have Department of the Justice. And it's interesting that they get sources from DOJ. Even DOJ now is starting to go, hey, this is, this is getting out of control. Hey, look, we have sort of a libertarian bent here on the midnight ride. But I personally believe that the only way we get this thing reformed is by changing Section 230 to essentially say that speech on these platforms is like speech in a public square. And First Amendment protections are extended to people on these platforms. And of, of course, there are restrictions to the First Amendment for freedom of speech, the fire in a crowded theater, violence, physical threats to somebody else. All of those are are exceptions and they are there. Those should be the same on social media as well. And if we were to do something like that, I think that would make this a fair system for everybody and allow politicians to uh, keep from meddling. I also think that the privacy policies within these platforms should not allow this sort of like unfettered sending of information to law enforcement. And if they do send information to law enforcement, it should be, they should be required to alert the user that this is happening so that there is recourse. It's almost like those like no-fly lists, you know, you don't know if you're on the no-fly list and nobody tells you anything. And and you know, it's like it to me, it feels like a big infringement on the right to privacy. Well it does. And I, I would almost say, well, I mean, you're not gonna tell some mobster, hey, we're, in, we're now investigating you for the RICO Act. We're sending a, your wiretap. I mean, you wouldn't do that for normal crimes, but you almost have to do that because we don't trust the administration, the Biden administration, to regulate these folks for issues like this. Because frankly, if we look at that domestic terrorist school board meeting case, that was brought on by Merrick Garland. Yeah. There's got to be, the, the liability factor has to be there. So it, like if they send, if, if they report, you know, illegal activity to the authorities, that's okay, obviously. If they're not, there has to be some recourse for damages to say like if Connor Coughlin says, hmm, that's weird that all these votes came in for Biden and it gets reported to the FBI, Connor Coughlin should be able to sue as a result of that. Absolutely, because because these these folks have been wronged. And this is one of the issues behind, along with immigration, that the next Congress needs to address. The Section 230 needs to happen. It's, it's a complicated issue, but this is, it's out of control. 
big tech is a threat to our liberties. And until Congress does something, what can you and I do? We can get off these platforms. They're businesses. They're making a lot of money off your information. Frankly, and I think we all know this, you're a lot happier without it. Go put your phone in a lockbox for a week and see how you feel. But we need to get get rid of big tech or, or at least diminish their grip on the American public square and on our free, free speech rights. I want to thank you guys again for listening to The Midnight Ride. Again, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen, and the word of mouth. Keep telling your friends about this. We are loving growing with you guys and telling everybody about the threats to our freedoms. And we love having you on. And, and so for Paul, because he's got to run and so do I, want to say thank you for listening to The Midnight Ride. We will see you next week. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. 